In a previous session, I discussed the fact that there are three worldviews that are currently fighting with one another for dominance in Western culture. One of those worldviews is Christianity. The second worldview is scientific naturalism. And the third worldview is postmodern relativism. These are the three worldviews that are dominating the scene in Europe, the United States, and Canada. It is important for us as Christians to understand the nature of these worldviews and how they're impacting society. The real question that scientific naturalism and postmodernism pose to Christianity is not simply whether Christianity is true or not. No, a more fundamental question is whether or not Christianity can be known to be true. There is, for example, in Western culture, permission given to Christians who claim their view is true as long as they don't claim anyone can know that it's true. If a Christian asserts that his view is true but has to accept it by faith, that will pass muster in many quarters. But when a Christian says, not only do I believe my religion is true, but I actually think it's possible to know that it's true, that is a view that will not be accepted widely in the worldview struggle that is currently going on in Western society. What I would like to do in this session is to describe and discuss the worldview of scientific naturalism, as well as provide a bit of a critique of that worldview that will be useful to you, I believe, if you run across people who hold this particular position. So I want to discuss what exactly is scientific naturalism, and then I would like to talk a little bit about a critique of scientific naturalism. What is scientific naturalism? There are three fundamental components of scientific naturalism as a worldview. Number one, scientific naturalism has an ontology. Now the word ontology means a view of what's real. Uh, a person's ontology then would, in, would include his view about what is real and what is not real. God exists in the Christian ontology but God does not exist in a, in a Marxist ontology, for example. So your ontology is your view of what's real. Now, what exactly is the scientific naturalist ontology? It is the view that the space-time physical universe that science studies is all there is. The Western scientist Carl Sagan, before he passed away, uh, hosted a series of television programs called Cosmos. And at the beginning of that series, Sagan said, the cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. He was expressing the ontology of a scientific naturalist. Scientific naturalist ontology is called materialism or physicalism. Only material objects that exist in space and time are real. It follows from this, for example, that there is no mind, there is no soul, that living things, including human beings, are their brains and central nervous systems. So that is the ontology of a scientific naturalist. In addition to an ontology, the scientific naturalist has what is called an epistemology. Epistemology means having to do with how we know things and what we can know. There are two central components of the epistemology of scientific naturalism, empiricism and scientism. Empiricism is the view that only what can be tested with my five senses can be known to be real. 
If I can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, or hear it, then I can know it's real. But if I can't see it or touch it or taste it or smell it or hear it, then I can't know it's real. As an illustration, I could know if there was a chair in the room or I could know if there was a unicorn in the room, a one-horned horse, because I would be able to develop tests with my five senses to determine whether or not those objects were in my local vicinity. Consider the chair. If I were to walk over and to feel a certain region of the room and observe it and it was a chair in appearance, I would know the chair was in the room. If there were a unicorn in the room, I ought to be able to search the room and discover that there was a horse with a horn on top of its head, and that would allow me to know that a unicorn was here. Since I've searched the room and I have not discovered a unicorn anywhere in the room, I now know that there is no unicorn present. The epistemology of empiricism says that if I can't test something with my five senses, I can't know whether it's true. So, for example, consider moral claims, like it is wrong to torture little babies for the fun of it, or stealing is wrong, or kindness and honesty are virtues, not vices. These moral statements are not statements that can be tested with your five senses. There's nothing that you can see, touch, taste, smell, or hear that will allow you to know whether kindness is a virtue or a vice, or whether it's right or wrong to torture little children just for the fun of it. So one implication of the epistemology of scientific naturalism is that moral assertions cannot be known to be true or false. It will follow from this, for example, that moral claims are mere expressions of personal feeling or opinion rather than being objective claims about the world that we could know are true or false. The third component of scientific naturalism, in addition to its ontology and its epistemology, is a creation myth or a creation story about how everything in the universe has come about. This creation story is basically a story that begins with small atomic particles, subatomic particles, rearranges them according to the laws of chemistry and physics. At that time, you get larger subatomic particles. Then these cluster together to form larger and larger particles until you get planets and stars and galaxies. On the planet Earth, at least, you have lightning or ultraviolet light striking a small pond with chemicals in it. These chemicals arrange to form organic molecules, which eventually evolve into the first living cells. And then a process of mutation and the struggle for survival cause these subatomic particles to rearrange to form larger and more complicated organisms until eventually human beings come into existence. I want you to notice two things about this creation story. First, it is entirely a material story. It speaks solely in terms of tiny particles rearranging in new and larger structures to form bigger and bigger objects from molecules to men to entire galaxies. And so the story is a purely material story told in solely physical terms. Secondly, I want you to notice that the story is completely deterministic. It is deterministic in two senses. First of all, it is deterministic through time. At any point in the universe at one time, if you were to take a look at the universe at that time and knew the laws of chemistry and physics, 
that would determine the state of the universe at the next time. So that at any moment, what is going on in the universe is completely determined and fixed by what was going on the moment before that, plus the laws of nature. So what we have is determinism through time. We also have determinism from parts to whole. Large objects that you can see with your ordinary senses, like frogs and human beings and tables and rocks, are completely determined in their behavior by the properties of their atomic parts. It's the atomic parts and their arrangements that determine the behavior of the whole. It will follow from this that there is no such thing as freedom of the will. In a scientific naturalist view of the world, everything happens because of determination from earlier to later and from parts to whole. Moral responsibility, moral praise, moral blame, these will all disappear on a scientific naturalist view of the world. Let's summarize now what we've learned about scientific naturalism as a worldview. We've said that it has first an ontology, only the physical universe that science studies is real. It has an epistemology, only what can be tested with the five senses, and only what can be tested and measured scientifically can be known to be true. This is called empiricism or scientism. And then a creation story that is deterministic both through time and from parts to whole. What picture of the world does the scientific naturalist generate? The scientific naturalist picture of the world depicts the universe as a cold, heartless machine that is completely deterministic in all of its behaviors and movements without any purpose, any goal, any meaning whatsoever. One of the results of this has been an increase of depression and anxiety in Western culture as more and more Westerners grapple with the implications of a scientific naturalist view of reality. For at the core of these implications is that there is no difference between right and wrong, there is no purpose to life, there is no meaning to anything, and this strikes at the very heart of, of human life and human existence and its hunger and thirst for meaning and purpose. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, Solomon considers a scientific naturalist view of the world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, Solomon asks the question, is there any meaning to life under the sun? And when he uses the phrase under the sun, he means if we take into account the universe without there being a God, we can ask ourselves the question, is there any purpose and meaning to life if God does not exist? He ends up concluding that if there is no God, everything is vain and empty and purposeless. One of the reasons that Solomon gives for this claim in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, is that if God does not exist, everything is composed of air, earth, fire, and water that swirl on their courses without the sea ever being full. What Solomon is referring to are the atoms of the ancient Near Eastern world. Today we have a periodic table that lists all the chemical elements, but in the ancient world there were four fundamental chemical elements, air, earth, fire, and water. 
What Solomon is telling us is that in an atheistic view of the world, you have the fundamental elements of nature that come together and break apart according to natural law, but there is no purpose for why any of this happens. And thus, in an atomistic universe that is mechanistic at its core and deterministic, there is no final cause, there is no purpose, there is no teleology, there is no ultimate goal or reason why anything exists. It follows then that the worldview of scientific naturalism is an extremely depressing, bleak view of the world. And we now must ask ourselves the question, how would one critique scientific naturalism as a worldview? Let us begin by taking a look at the naturalist theory of knowledge, the epistemology. I said in an earlier session, but I want to repeat right here, that the epistemology of scientific naturalism is self-refuting. You may recall from an earlier session that I pointed out that an assertion is self-refuting if it makes itself false. For example, a sentence, there are no sentences longer than three words, would be a sentence that makes itself false because it is itself longer than three words. The statement, I do not exist. The statement, there are no truths. Uh, the statement, there are no moral absolutes and you have a moral absolute duty to be more tolerant. These are all assertions that are self-refuting. The statement of scientific naturalism is itself self-refuting. For example, if I were to say, I can only believe what I can test with my five senses. That statement itself cannot be tested with the five senses. There is absolutely nothing you can see, touch, taste, smell, or hear that would help you decide whether or not that statement itself was true. Therefore, the statement, I can only believe something if I can test it with my five senses, would itself be something that a person could not believe or know to be true. It is, therefore, self-refuting. Or consider the related claim, I can only know what I can test and measure scientifically. That statement itself cannot be tested or measured scientifically, and so the assertion itself could not be known to be true. It follows, then, that the epistemology of science is self-refuting. But there is another problem with the epistemology of, of science and naturalism, and that is that there are things that we all know that we can't measure scientifically and that we can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear. Let me give you some examples. We all know our own conscious inner life. When I introspect, I become aware of my thoughts, my beliefs, my desires, my sensations and feelings. And I know what my thoughts about a subject are. I know what I believe about, say, American history. I know whether I desire lunch right now or not. And I know what I'm feeling inside. I know, in short, my own conscious inner life. But you cannot see, touch, taste, smell, or hear consciousness. Consciousness is invisible. It is not the sort of thing that you could have an experience with one of your senses. If I can only know what I can see, touch, taste, smell, or hear, it would follow that I could not know my own conscious life. But very clearly, I do know my own conscious life. And so it follows from this that the, that the principle of empiricism, 
that I can only know what I can test with my five senses must be false. As in, not only do I know my own conscious states and my own conscious life uh, by what I would call introspection and not by my senses, I also know the laws of logic and mathematics. The laws of logic and mathematics can be known without testing with the five senses. So the truths of mathematics that two and two is four, the truths of logic that something can't be true and false at the same time in the same sense, are things I know to be the case, but I cannot test them scientifically, and I can't test them with my five senses. So for these two reasons, there are serious difficulties with the epistemology of scientific naturalism. It is self-refuting, and it implies that there are certain things I can't know that I do, in fact, know quite well. There's another thing that I know that naturalism implies that I can't know, and that is moral judgments. In spite of what the scientific naturalist says, I know that mercy and kindness and honesty are virtues. I know that hatred and racial bigotry are vices. I know that it's wrong to touch little baby, to, tor- uh, to torture little babies for the fun of it. I know that it's wrong to lie and steal and murder, that it's right to tell the truth and to be honest. These are all things that I know. I also know that I have experienced God in my own life. There have been times when God has come to me in religious experience, and I have been able to sense and to feel the immediacy of His presence in prayer and in worship in very specific times in my life. And so the scientific naturalist implies that there is no such thing as, as, as truthful religious experience and that we do not have knowledge of value. And in that sense, the scientific naturalist epistemology is fundamentally mistaken. What about the scientific naturalist creation story? What about its theory of how everything has come into existence? You will recall that I said that the scientific naturalist creation story is deterministic both through time and from parts to whole. Unfortunately for the scientific naturalist creation story, we all know that we have free will. I can raise my arm to vote if I want to, and I also have the power to do otherwise. I have the power to either raise my hand and vote in an election, let's say, or to refrain from raising my hand and voting and keep it at my side. Both of these options are up to me. I can do either one of them. If I choose to do one, I could have done the other. I have free will with respect to whether or not I raise my arm or leave it by my side. Because I have free will with respect to raising my arm, it follows that nothing determines whether my arm goes up or stays down. Determinism is, therefore, false. Freedom of the will is a reality, and so given freedom, the the creation story of the naturalist turns out to be false and inadequate. These are very brief critiques, then, of the naturalist theory of knowledge and the naturalist creation story. What about the naturalist ontology? What I'd like to do in the rest of our time together as I'd like to present to you some pieces of evidence that serve two purposes. First, they will provide evidence that scientific naturalism 
is not true. But secondly, they will provide evidence for the existence of a personal God. These pieces of evidence then serve two functions. The first function is they show that naturalism is not the case, and the second function is they show that there has to be a God in order to explain these facts. Now, what facts am I referring to? Let me begin by a fact that is now beyond reasonable doubt, that our universe began to exist. We now know that the space-time physical universe has not been here forever, that it had a beginning. Now, by universe, I mean space, time, and matter. We know that the universe of space, time, and matter had a beginning at some time in the past. Now, how do we know this? Well, let me give you two ways that we know these claims are true. First of all, the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is one of the most widely accepted, well-established laws of physics that we have today in science. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that in a closed system, the amount of energy that is available to do work or the amount of useful energy is constantly being depleted and running out. To put the point very simply, that in a closed system, which means a system that there is no energy or matter capable of getting into it from the outside, that in such a system, if left to itself, the energy inside of it that can be useful will eventually become depleted into useless energy that can no longer be retrieved to accomplish anything. Now let me illustrate this as follows. The illustration is not entirely accurate, but it will, I believe, serve to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. Suppose that you came into a room and I had a hot coffee cup with coffee in it sitting on this podium. You touched the coffee cup and you felt that it was still warm. You would know from that experiment that this coffee cup had not been sitting there by itself for, say, two years. If the coffee cup had been sitting there for two years, what would happen to it by now? I think the answer is obvious. It would have already cooled off and reached room temperature. That would be called reach equilibrium state. An equilibrium state is when the coffee cup would have the same heat and temperature as the surrounding environment. You would know that that coffee cup, in fact, had probably not been sitting there more than 30 minutes or, or an hour at the most. In fact, you would also know that at some very short time in the past, someone had to put that hot coffee in that cup while it was still hot, and from that time on, once the hot coffee was put in the cup, the second law of thermodynamics says that the energy in that coffee cup will start running out as time goes on. Thus, the second law tells us that the coffee cup that's hot will eventually cool down and reach equilibrium with the room around it. Now, the universe is exactly like that coffee cup. The universe is running out of energy that is useful. Not long ago, Time magazine did a special on how the universe was going to end. And it made the point that at some time 
far distant in the future, all of the light in the universe will go out. All of the stars, like the sun, that are generating light will eventually burn out and there will be no more light in the universe. All the pockets of heat in the universe, like the sun and the stars, will burn up and use up all their nuclear fuel and will eventually reach absolute zero, and that's very, very cold. It will, there will be no heat anywhere in the universe, and there will be no motion. Now, if the universe is running down, and, and it's going to eventually reach a point where there's no light, there's no heat, and there's no motion anywhere in the universe, it follows from this that the universe could not have been here forever. It had to have a beginning. There had to be a beginning point in the past when the energy was put into the universe from the very beginning. Now, if energy was put into the universe at the beginning, there had to be something outside the universe, and in that sense supernatural, above the natural world, that put the energy there to start with. Thus, we know that not only did the universe begin to exist from the second law, but energy was infused into it by something outside the universe from the beginning, and we call the being who did that God. There's another reason that we know the universe had a beginning, and that's because it is impossible to cross infinity. Infinity is infinitely larger than any finite number. In fact, infinity, plus or minus any number, is still infinity. Now, suppose that I died and went to heaven and God said, I have an assignment for you, Dr. Moreland. I want you to count the, nat the, the natural numbers from now on, and you'd better get started. So I begin counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I count until I'm up to the number 50 quadrillion. At that particular point, another individual dies, and God gives him the same assignment that he's given me. That person is only counted up to the number 75. I'm at the number 50 quadrillion. He's at the number 75. I look over at him and say, you know, I feel sorry for you because I am so far ahead of you in your count. Until it dawned on me, I'm actually not any farther ahead of him in the count because we still, both of us, have an infinite number of numbers left to go. I have made absolutely no progress whatsoever because no matter how far I count, I will still have an infinite number of numbers left to go through. Trying to cross infinity is like trying to jump out of a pit that is infinitely tall without any boundaries on the top of it. You would never be able to get out. Now, let us suppose that this is the present moment, and let's suppose that this is 50 years ago, this is 100 years ago, and so on, so that we're going back into the past, the further back we go. Now, if the universe did not have a beginning, how far back does this line go? The answer is it goes infinitely far into the past. Indeed, there is no edge to the past, because if there were an edge to the past, that would be the beginning. In a beginningless universe, there is absolutely no edge whatsoever, 
And the past literally goes on forever and ever, infinitely far into the past. Now, it would follow from this that in order for the universe to go through the past to reach the present moment, it would have to cross an infinite number of earlier moments, which is impossible. Thus, if the universe did not have a beginning, the present moment could have never arisen. It would require the universe to go through an infinite number of earlier moments. But since the present moment does exist, it follows that the past was only finite, and there was a beginning to the universe. By the way, even God cannot cross infinity, because without a universe, God does not exist in time forever. He is timeless, and God has only been crossing time since He created it. It is impossible, therefore, to cross infinity, and this means that in order for the present moment to be reached, the universe had to have a beginning. So for these two reasons, the second law of thermodynamics and the impossibility of crossing infinity, we know that our universe had a beginning. And it seems obvious that if the universe had a beginning, something outside the universe had to begin it. Universes do not spring into existence out of nothing without anything causing it. This, then, cannot be explained by the naturalist. The naturalist cannot give any explanation for the origin of the universe. And the Christian can give an explanation for the origin of the universe by saying that God is the source outside the universe of its coming into existence. There is a second piece of evidence that shows naturalism to be false and that provides grounds for believing that God exists. And that's the evidence of biological information. There is a scientific research project all around the world called SETI, S-E-T-I. SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or simply the Search for Life in Outer Space. SETI scientists have probes that are scanning the heavens to see if they can discover a signal from intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Now, I personally do not believe that there is going to be a discovery of intelligent life in the universe, but that doesn't matter for my purposes. Because for what I want to argue is, is how a SETI scientist would discover that there's life in the universe in the, in the first place. It would make sense, would it not, that if scientists are going to look for signs of intelligent life elsewhere, they would have to have some criterion to recognize signs of intelligence when they discovered them. And in fact, SETI scientists have developed those criteria. They have distinguished between randomness, order, and information. Suppose that I had a, a set of letters and numbers right here on, on cards. I threw it up in the air, and it scattered randomly with a few of those cards landing on the podium. Suppose on the podium I had an, an H, an upside-down 3, a square root of minus 1, a G, 
an, an L laying on its side, that would be random. Now, what are the characteristics of a random sequence of letters? Well, number one, the first characteristic is that it is not specific. You will notice that the letters that I made reference to are not any specific letters. It's just a collection of letters without any specificity whatsoever. The second characteristic of a random sequence it is that it is very, very simple. If I were going to have a computer generate a random sequence of numbers, I would give the computer two instructions. The first would be pick any letter, and the second instruction would be repeat. If I told a computer to continue to pick any letter and repeat, it would generate a random sequence of letters. Note again that the sequence is not specific. I tell the computer to pick any letter and repeat, not any particular letter. And secondly, it's simple. There are only two instructions. Note that there is no repetition. It is a G, an upside down 3, square root of minus 1, and so on. But there's no simple unit that's repeated over and over again. Contrast that with the second category, simple order. Suppose that I had 500 MEs in a row, ME, 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 500 times. This is not random. This is very delicately and precisely ordered. <clears throat> what are the characteristics of order? Number one, it is specific. Note that the to tell the computer to generate 500 MEs in a row, I would not tell it, pick any letter. I would say, pick an M and pick an E. Very specific letters. So order is, number one, precise and specific. Number two, it is still simple. How many instructions would I tell a computer to generate an ordered sequence of 500 MEs in a row? The answer, three instructions. Pick an M pick an E, and repeat. Note third that an ordered sequence is repetitive. In our case, we have the unit ME that is simply repeated over and over and over again 500 times. So a random sequence is not specific and it's simple. An ordered sequence is specific simple and repetitive. And the third distinction is information. Suppose that I had the sentence, John loves Mary. We notice that this now conveys information. It is not random. It is not ordered. It is information. What are the characteristics of information. Number one, it's specific. To tell a computer to generate John Loves Mary, I would say print a J, print an O, print an H, print an N, print a space, L-O-V-E-S space, M-A-R-Y. So it is very specific. The second characteristic is that it's quite complicated. It is not two or three instructions, 
it's 15 instructions in a row. Print a J, followed by an O, followed by an H, followed by an N, followed by a space, and so on. If the message were the book of Romans, it would contain hundreds upon hundreds of specific pieces of information in a precise order. So an information signal is number one, specific, number two, complex, and number three, it is not repetitive. In John Loves Mary, there is no simple unit that is repeated over and over and over again. Now, SETI scientists make an assumption in their work. And that assumption is, and I believe it is a correct assumption, that assumption is that information only comes from an intelligent, designing intellect or mind. When SETI scientists scan the heavens and they discover inform- if they discover order or randomness, they will not conclude that there is an intelligent life in outer space that stands behind those signals. However, if they were to discover a signal that had, say, the first 20 prime numbers in a row, that would be a signal that conveyed not randomness or order, but information. And they would immediately conclude that the source of that information was an intelligent designer who created the message and the information to begin with. Now, what's interesting about this distinction between randomness, order, and information is this. The most important discovery in the 20th century in biology was that living systems are filled with libraries of information. The DNA is called the genetic code. It is translated and transcribed, and it is teeming with information. Indeed, a DNA molecule has more information in it than a library at a standard university. But now, if information can only come from an intelligent mind, it follows that the information in a DNA molecule can only come from an intelligent mind, and it is most reasonable to believe that the source of the information in DNA is one single mind as opposed to a plurality of minds. If you have two explanations for a phenomenon that each explain the data, you should prefer the simpler to the more complicated explanation. If one God, one intelligent mind will explain the data, there's no reason to postulate two, three, four, or a number of them. It follows now that the beginning of the universe and the origin of biological information provide evidence against naturalism and for a supreme being. There's one other piece of information that I would like to mention, and that is the idea that human beings have equal value and demand equal rights. My daughter came home one day from school, and she had a flyer celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday. And the flyer said, Martin Luther King believed all human beings ought to be treated with equal rights and equal value. Now, I asked my daughter if she believed that that was true, and she said, yes, I do. And I said, well, why do you believe that? And she said, because of God. 
Well, I responded, let's pretend that there is no God for the sake of argument, and let's talk about this topic of equal rights. I said, if you look behind our sofa on the wall, we have a very lovely painting, and on the coffee table is a piece of trash that I forgot to throw away last night before I went to bed. If the house were burning down, and you could save only one object, the painting or that piece of trash, do you think you should save one of them and leave the other, or do you think that it would not matter, and you could flip a coin to decide which you were going to save? Well, my daughter said, Dad, I shouldn't flip a coin. She said, I ought to save the painting. Well, why should you save the painting, I asked. Her response was, it is far more valuable than that piece of paper. I said, that's a good point. What if our choice was between saving our dog, Casey, our pet dog, and the piece of paper? Well, she said, Dad, I should obviously save our pet dog, Casey, and let the piece of paper go. I said, we now learn a lesson from what I believe you've just said is true, and here's the lesson. Equals ought to be treated equally, and unequals ought to be treated unequally. It is wrong to treat equal things as though they were unequal, but it is also wrong to treat unequal things as though they were equal. If you were to treat that piece of trash and our dog, Casey, as though they had equal value and flip a coin to decide whether you were going to save the paper or our pet dog from the fire, that would be the wrong thing to do. Why? Because you would be treating these objects as equal, though they are not equal. Now, I said, do you realize that human beings do not have anything in common that's equal? There are smart and dumb human beings. There are good-looking and unattractive human beings. There are athletic and non-athletic human beings. There are socially useful and socially useless human beings. We have absolutely nothing in common that's equal. Well, my daughter was just a little girl at the time, and she said, Well, Daddy, there is something we have in common that's equal. I said, What is that? She said, Belly buttons. Well, I said, Should we treat some people with large belly buttons with more value than we treat people with small belly buttons? I said, what if we were to take your sister to the doctor and have her belly button removed? Could we then use her as a doorstop? Would she lose her rights once she lost her belly button? I said, we've learned now two lessons from our conversation. The first lesson is equals ought to be treated equally and unequals ought to be treated unequally. And the second lesson is that if human beings are going to be treated with equal rights, they have to have something in common that's equal, that is not silly and trivial like a belly button, but is deep and weighty and very, very important. Now I returned to Martin Luther King's birthday. And I said to my daughter, Martin Luther King believed that we ought to treat all human beings with equal rights and equal value. Do you know why he believed that, I asked her. She said, no, Daddy, why? Because, I said, he believed that all human beings had something in common that was, number two, deep and weighty and important, 
rather than trivial and silly and of unimportance, namely, that all human beings were made in the image of Almighty God. According to Martin Luther King, it doesn't matter if some people are intelligent, others aren't, some are athletic and others aren't, some are useful and others aren't. What matters is that all human beings are made in the image of God, and it is on that basis that they should be given equal rights. The important thing to keep in mind about this, then, is that it is almost impossible to justify the international community's desire to support equal human rights for all human beings if there is no image of God and if there is no God who made us in His image. Because on, if there is no God who made us in His image, then there is nothing of weight and importance and, and extreme value that all human beings have in common that would serve as a basis for their equal treatment. It follows, then, that equal human rights provides evidence that God exists as the only proper explanation for how there could be equal human rights. And equal human rights presents evidence against the scientific naturalist view of the world. What we've done is we've had a chance to take a look at scientific naturalism as a worldview. I have described the naturalist ontology, that the physical universe in space and time is all there is. I described the naturalist epistemology, only what you can test with your five senses, only what you can measure scientifically and quantify can be known to be true, and the scientific creation story that everything that exists came from the rearrangement into larger and larger chunks of tiny little particles, subatomic particles. And this is deterministic both through time and from parts to whole. I then offered a criticism of the scientific naturalist worldview regarding its epistemology. I claimed that it is both self-refuting and that it implies that I can't know logic and mathematics and consciousness, and moral values, and religious experience, whereas I really do know all of these things, therefore the epistemology is inadequate. I critiqued the naturalist creation story because it implies that there is no such thing as freedom of the will, no moral responsibility, no moral praise or blame. But on the contrary, we all know that we have free will, the simple act of raising one's arm is something that is up to me. I could have done otherwise. The choice is mine to make. And then finally, there are three pieces of evidence that provide grounds for believing in a Creator God, but they also provide evidence against scientific naturalism. The beginning of the universe, as supported by the second law of thermodynamics and the impossibility of crossing infinity the existence of biological information as opposed to simple order and randomness, and information can only come from an intelligent mind, and the reality of equal human value and equal rights for all, something that is true only if all human beings have something in common that is of equal value. If there is a God who made us in His image, we have an explanation for equal human rights, 
But if there is no God, we have no explanation for equal human rights. It is for these reasons that I am convinced that scientific naturalism is a false and destructive worldview, and Christians need to know how to respond to it intelligently when they come across some of its advocates.